One of the challenges of it being the Eric Zellner show today is that it's really not the Eric Zellner show. It's really about Christ and his word. And so we're going to turn now to God's word and let him speak to his people. Exodus 12 is where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to have several sermons through this Passover meal because it really is the salvation event of the Old Testament. It's, it's what the people of old would have looked back on as the mark of God's grace and kindness to them. It's the start of their freedom. And it also becomes a sacrament that they are going to celebrate for centuries. It's the way that God instructed them to annually remember that he is their God, that he alone has delivered them from slavery to sin, and he calls them to a renewed or new life. So we pick up this morning in this instruction, beginning at verse 14. This is God still speaking to Moses. Here he introduces the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house, houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is God's word. Let's pray for the ministry of the Spirit. Oh God, we pray now that as we come to your word, that your spirit would quiet our hearts and that you would give us the ears to hear what you desire to say to your people. 
We also pray, Father, that you would again be willing to wield uh, a man of sinful, crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray, O God, that you would draw us near to know you revealed in your word. Amen. I wonder if you've already realized at this point in your life that you really can't change people. Uh, you, You may be a good influence on someone. You might be a bad influence on someone, but you really can't change them from who they are or who they desire to be. Now, that can give you a lot of comfort if you look back on your own life and you say, well, maybe I need to give myself a little grace. In those moments where I wasn't a great influence on somebody, I I couldn't really have changed them from who they were or who they wanted to be. People almost always end up exactly as who who they are or who they want to be. Likewise, in those moments when you were a great influence on somebody, you don't have to beat yourself up. You couldn't transform them into something other than who they are or who they wanted to be. Usually, you can't befriend someone in hopes of fixing them. You certainly can't date someone in hopes of changing them. And you will not be able to marry someone in hopes of transforming them. Now, depending on your disposition, uh, you might think that this sounds pessimistic. Or you might think it sounds realistic. In either case... I suspect that you have, at some level, already learned this lesson, or you're learning it right now. But why is this true? Why are you, by the force of your personality and your wonderful character, your own goodness, not able to fix someone else at heart level? Because you're not God. You don't befriend someone to change them. But in a spiritual sense, God does. You do not date someone or try to woo them thinking that you can change them, but God does. Spiritually speaking, God does draw and pursue his people. You certainly do not marry someone in hopes of changing them, but spiritually speaking, God really does. And that's the picture of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we just read. God saves you spiritually from your sin so that you do not face eternal condemnation and death. And He does all that in order to sanctify you in this life, to change you into the person that He created you to be. This actually runs counter to much of Christian thought. Many of those who would mark Christian on their religious affiliation, on whatever document they would sign, they they think in terms of Christian as a category, well, I'm not a, a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm a Christian. In other words, they're thinking about it more as title than transformation. Exodus 12 says that's that's not right. And so God saves you from death to sanctify you in Christ. This morning we're going to look at the point of the feast. And the seriousness of sin, and then thirdly, the response of faith. Let's start with the point of the feast. The modern church has a real interest, you might say, a fascination almost, with the concept of of fasting. What do I mean by the modern church? I'm talking about that which is trendy, that which is popular, 
today in large churches. They might call themselves independent. They might call themselves non-denominational. They're usually loosely evangelical. Oftentimes they're undergirded or built on Pentecostal, maybe even prosperity gospel theology. The fascination goes like this. God wants you to sacrifice something for him. So for those who desire to deeply grow, you would be willing then to surrender something for God. And in this teaching, you will know that God honors or appreciates your sacrifice when he either answers your prayers or he rewards your faithfulness. And basically, you get to decide whether or not he has appreciated it by whether he has answered your prayers according to your wishes or rewarded you in a way that you want. I, I have never heard of anyone say, you know, the Lord answered my prayers because I fasted, and he answered me with a big fat no. Likewise, you, you never see someone say that the faithfulness that I expressed to the Lord was, was rewarded by God sending me into a season of deep sorrow and pain and suffering where I was made to wrestle with the Lord. People don't say that because the expectation is that fasting somehow makes God maneuverable so that he is on the hook. This thread is ironically running self-sacrifice between churches that have nothing to do with one another. On, On one side, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the importance of fasting, that is, sacrificing something to God. And here we are at the start of Lent. But oddly, in a manner that you would think would be completely unconnected, the big popular megachurch is teaching the same thing. Why is that? Maybe they're onto something that I have not figured out or you have not yet believed. Maybe they are, in fact, raising a valid point. Or it could be that somehow this appeals to the flesh. The human desire to control ourselves and thereby maneuver God. The Apostle Paul warns of this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why am I mentioning that here? Because the Bible has so much more to say about feasting than it does about fasting. Don't get me wrong. The Bible does speak to the concept of fasting. Mostly in order to lay aside the distractions of your heart, to devote yourself in prayer to the Lord. It's a good and right thing. It's a good and right motive. But the Bible has a far greater emphasis on feasting. Why feasting more than fasting? Because God knows that you and I are prone to forget what he has done for us. Fasting almost always leaves you wrongly thinking, this is what I am doing for God. Feasting is meant to say, this is what God has done for you. Celebrate it. That's why feasting is so much more common in the Bible. The reason the feast 
of unleavened bread follows the Passover is, is because there was a night in which the death plague came through Egypt and this lamb was sacrificed. God has done something profound in the realm of mercy and grace in covering you. He did not destroy you as your sins deserved. And now he calls a feast so that you will forever celebrate his saving grace. Look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. What is Memorial Day in the United States? Is it not, of course, a day of remembrance? A day of mourning over those who have served in the military and died protecting our freedoms. God looks at this newfound congregation, this this people who have been gathered as slaves, and he says, the very next day after the Passover meal is a day for this congregation, for you to remember me. But don't mourn. Don't mourn at all. Instead, keep it as a feast. And here's what I want you to celebrate. I saved you in order to sanctify you in order to change you from slaves to sons. So day 10, you get a lamb. Day 14, you kill the lamb. You sprinkle the blood on the doorposts. That's the feast of the Passover. And it happens between the night of the 14th day and the night of the 15th day. The lamb and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. Last week we said that the, that the feast pictures a, a newfound freedom, but the Passover Lamb is also spoken of like it's a sacrifice for sins. Remember chapter 12, verse 12? The people of Israel would have completely loved this passage. They would have expected it. Yes, God kills our enemies. But then chapter 12, verse 13, it's totally unexpected. This blood is a sign for you. So that you will know that your own sins deserved death. And then the next day, The 15th day of the month begins a a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Take a look at verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what's leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done for you on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared. We make a huge mistake when we look at Old Testament feasts and presume that they were burdensome and arduous and painful. Don't work on day one. Don't work on day seven. And then feast in between. Here's where you begin to understand the correlation between a feast and a fast. This is not just a description of the feast. It's also the reason for the feast. What are we celebrating? What are they supposed to give up? Passover celebrates God's deliverance, God's grace and his mercy over his people to call these Hebrew slaves out of bondage, to not give them what their sins deserved. By faith, they kept that feast, believing that God was going to accept the sacrifice of a lamb to cover their sin. That's what they celebrate. What are they supposed to give up? Leaven. Is that because God's generally opposed to bread rising? Does he hate those little packets of yeast that you can buy 
at the grocery store? No, it it is because leaven for God's people represents their old bondage, their former patterns of sin. Why does it represent that? Because it represents that old lump, who they used to be. Sometime when I was in high school, my parents went on a kick of creating bread, and they would make homemade bread throughout high school and college. Uh, I don't remember them carrying around new packs of yeast every time they wanted bread to rise. And the reason that they didn't do that is because they always took some portion of the original bread starter. And they carried it forward into this new lump of dough. So that every new lump had, in some ways, been pulled from the old. That's the picture here. In the same way that it takes just a tiny bit of leaven to change bread, it only takes a tiny bit of sin carried over from who you used to be to change you from who God meant you to be to what you once were in the bondage of Egypt. And then likewise, as leaven has this multiplying and spreading effect, so does sin. Passover comes first, the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes second, and the order is essential because here is the picture that God is drawing. Because I have delivered you out of sin, I want you to celebrate and remember what I have done for you, feast. And when you celebrate and you remember my grace to you, you must long to get rid of all the remnants of your past bondage to sin. Sweep the house of your heart. Get rid of it. By grace, through faith, you really are a new people. Live that way. Now, to connect the dots back to this fascination with fasting, what real spiritual value is there in saying, I'm going to give up red meat for for Lent? I'm going to fast chocolate and sugar for the next 40 days? Or maybe I'm going to fast video games? at least at my house, but if I go to a friend's house and he's playing video, I can play video games then, but I have to be really precise about this. What value is there at all in any of these things? Because the Bible says, of course, that red meat is not your biggest problem and chocolate is not your biggest problem and sugar is not your biggest problem and even video games are not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is sin. If you want to learn what it means to fast, God says, why don't you fast your sin? Why don't you put it away? And make sure you understand that you did not fast that sin in order to get God's favor. You fast your sin because God already showed you favor and called you into a new life of freedom when you didn't deserve it. You didn't get rid of your old sin first in hopes that God would cover your sin. God says, I delivered you from the judgment that your sin deserved. And now I call you to get rid of sin because you really are free. I wonder if you can see how this is the exact same picture of what happens in your own life as you embrace Jesus Christ. Christ, your Passover lamb, has been slain. But unlike that first Passover lamb who died and laid there dead, your Passover lamb has been raised from the dead. 
Paul says in Colossians 3, if then he's been raised, you've been raised with him. So therefore you should seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then he goes on to say, therefore put away whatever is earthly in you. Put away sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. God saves you from death to sanctify you in Christ. So we've looked at the point of the feast. Now let's examine the seriousness of sin. Leaven represents sin. And that the people of Israel, I think the people of Israel certainly know that because there's 22 times in the Old Testament and 17 times in the New Testament when leaven is mentioned and it is almost always a reference to evil and sin. Jesus says, you'll remember, beware the leaven of Herod or beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And he also refers himself to himself as the bread of life, that is the bread who you may feed on, the one who has no sin. You can also think of Galatians 5 and 6. You can think of 1 Corinthians 5. The leaven of sin has this capacity to corrupt God's people. These are really common examples. But I wonder if you notice the repetition in verse 15 and 19. It said that if a person eats bread that is leavened, that person will be cut off from Israel, meaning they would be physically removed from the community of Israel. That seems so odd to our ears. Maybe even drastic. But if leaven represents your old bondage to sin, who you used to be before God saved you, then here's the message to the Hebrew people. Your willingness to embrace this feast says something about the condition of your heart. If you eat leaven in the midst of the feast of unleavened bread, it's a declaration. You have no gratitude for God's grace, and you have no intention of living by faith as a new creation. And so verses 19 and 20 act like an exclamation mark. God says, I saved you in order to sanctify you, to transform you from a slave into a new creation, a son. And if you must decide to live like a slave, I will let you wander until you figure out how serious sin really is. I think part of the challenge that we face in chapter 12 is that there's a lot going on. Our sermon last week, God explained the Passover uh, to Moses and to Aaron. Here in verses 14 through 20, there's a description of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When God's people get into the promised land, this is a feast. I want you to celebrate it annually. And then at verse 21, Moses tells the elders to go and celebrate the Passover meal. So long before microphones and cool speakers and a pastor who could be confused for a pop star... That was a joke. Moses communicated with his people by simply calling the elders together and saying, go and take this message to the rest of God's people. He brings the elders in and he communicates this message. And so the net effect of the way this structure works is that God told Moses about the Passover and then God told Moses about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the last statement provides a kingdom picture that is so much bigger than the feast. Every reminder of your sin takes you back to the blood. As he's about to tell you about the Passover feast. 
two quick applications. Number one, are you interested in taking sin seriously? And then number two, are you doing anything about it? Sin ignored, number one, always results in your being removed from God's people. Now, of course, that carries forward in the New Testament. We have passages about church discipline. Uh, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 12. But you see, sin ignored also says something about the eternal condition of your own heart. Those who claim the name of Christ, but he'll but those who still coddle and and enjoy the blessing of this this growing, thriving sin fail to recognize just how serious it really is. And, and, And that person would need to ask themselves this question, if God saved me in order to sanctify me, am I interested really in being shaped by God's word and his spirit? And secondly, if I was saved by God to be sanctified, am I taking it seriously? Does the gospel of this Passover lamb compel you to desire to throw off your old sins and really to live like a new creation? Or are you just in the church because you enjoy listening to sermons when the pastor talks about Jesus and his love or maybe your friends go there? Or maybe the the location is so incredibly convenient. Services, well, there's two of them. We can go whatever time we wake up. Have you ever really trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you publicly professed faith in Jesus? And then does that profession of faith, does that declaration that you've been delivered actually compel you to a transformation that matters to you? How serious is your sin? Passover lamb points you to Christ and a new life in him. Now, you and I live in a world that's completely sanitized of blood and death. So it's super easy to read on the pages of the Bible and miss the images. If you'll imagine yourself as a child in a Hebrew family, on this night of the Passover, this is what it would have looked like. Your family owns a a, a little flock of sheep or goats. And your dad goes down, he gets one of the finest, the finest of the flock. He brings it into the house. It lives in and among you for several days. This, This lamb is beautiful. He's in the prime of his life. He's one year old. His fur, his wool is perfectly white. He has no spots. He has no discoloration. For four days, this lamb lives around your family, and your brothers and sisters all love the lamb, and they pet the lamb, and they enjoy the, the, the sense of loving and having a pet inside the family. Four days of closeness, four days of affection. And then your dad says, well, it's time to kill the lamb picks up the lamb and he takes a knife to its throat and he kills the lamb and as the blood drains down into the basin the lamb kicks and twitches your dad drains it when the lamb finally stops moving he lays the thing down and you're still standing there looking at the lamb and dad goes outside and he he grabs old hyssop bushes and and he brings it in and while the blood lays there still warm he dips the hyssop branches in this basin of blood and he goes outside to the doorpost and paints around your doorpost it is not a mild picture 
It's a graphic picture. And then he says, listen, little one, if you want to survive tonight, do not leave the house. Stay under the blood of this lamb. Do not go out for anything. Likewise, if you trust Jesus as your Savior, you are under the shelter of the blood of of the Lamb of God. And the passage is telling us that, that your sins deserve death. Stay indoors. Do not come out from under this Lamb for anything. Do not ever let yourself think that you are safe out from under the blood of God's Lamb. Don't let your pride fool you into believing that at one point you really were a pretty good person or that God could grant you favor out from under the blood of the Lamb. Do not look out the window or long to be back in Egypt on the outside. The death angel's running through. You're not safe out from under this blood of God's Lamb. Don't let your pride tell you this kind of Christianity is too graphic. It's too ugly. I want a kind of Christianity that's a little more sanitized. The Bible says it's not safe out from under this kind of blood. God's true and perfect lamb. Do not let your curiosity cause you to dabble with the old leaven of what it was like when you lived in Egypt. The people of Egypt are dying, and it's not safe out from under the blood. Moreover, don't hope that you could please the Father out from under under the blood of the Lamb by good works. Don't take any confidence in who you think you are apart from Christ. Because when the death angel sweeps through the camp, you do not want to be left going, well, I really was a fairly good fellow compared to other people. You are not safe anywhere unless you're under the blood of Christ, the perfect lamb, the true Passover lamb. God saves you from death to sanctify you in Christ. So we've got the point of the feast, the seriousness of sin. We're going to close with a response of faith this morning. Take a look at verse 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So the response of faith is really just simply believing God. And doing what he says. If you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that this is a rare but appropriate response of faith to the commands of God. Now, there are two sacraments in the Old Testament. One is circumcision. God gave it to Abraham as a way of marking out all of the males in the population. And the other is the Passover. Why did God institute the Passover along with this feast of unleavened bread so that his people would remember for generations and train their children to look to God for their salvation. Memorialize this day. This isn't going to be the start of the day that you can wear white all the way up to Labor Day. This is the day for you to remember that you are white, cleansed by the blood of Christ. I want you to remember your salvation every single year and teach your children to cling to it and what it means to live a life of worship with me. So I began the sermon 
By touching on things that the modern church is fascinated by, I will end with another one. Many of you have been to churches that, that teach or celebrate the meaning of the Passover. In some churches, they have a Seder supper, which is meant for Christians to better understand what was taught and pictured in various Old Testament rituals. I, I've even been uh, personally to a full life-size version of the tabernacle, complete with tents and ornaments and lambs and bread. Listen, all those are fine. They really are fine if you want to recognize one thing. They were all pointing ahead, and they're all fulfilled in Christ. So the reason the Christian church said we will put away these ceremonial laws of the Old Testament is because Christ came to fulfill the law in every aspect. Ceremonies are meant to help you remember. And God's not finished with ceremonies. He's finished with those ceremonies. Now he gives you ceremonies that are bloodless and look back on the cross. The New Testament sacraments are baptism. We celebrated one last week. The Lord's Supper, which we are about to enjoy. And before you partake, I want you to remember and believe what one pastor explained. And that is that the law was perfectly kept by Christ. And all his penalties against God's sin sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is not the path towards righteousness. Christ is. And the ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ for our righteousness. For, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ took the Passover. He took the feast of unleavened bread. He brought them together. And he said, I want you to celebrate the Lord's Supper. May you be nourished. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. God saves you from death to sanctify you in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the richness of your word. And the clear reminder that Christ has been sufficient and full sacrifice to pay for our sins. And now, God, we pray that you would bind these, this truth to our hearts, that we might enjoy the fellowship that is ours in him, in whose name we pray. Amen.